Good morning. So, uh, Richard, did you say someone had some stroke? Is that what you said? I hadn't heard that term before. But I assume that that means they've got it going on or something of that nature. So it's fair to say that the Astros have some stroke. Is that right? So today's the day to uh, hit up on the Astro fans. If you need anything from them, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, today is the day. So um, because um, that eventually will fade away into next year and then we'll do it all over again, right? All right. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning and, uh, and you're not an Astros fan, that is okay. We, uh, you're welcome here. And uh, we would love to get to know you, get some information from you. There's a card underneath the seat in front of you. Just fill that out and let us know. If you have prayer requests or anything like that, you can also put that on that card. Turn it in electronically or you can put it in the box in the back. And that's also where we take offerings. So we should see it a height in offerings today. So Astros win, height in offerings Okay, uh, not necessarily from the Aggies, you're excused, but the uh, Astro fans. It's a hard year for the Aggies, um, but the Astros did make it better. We can always talk about the positive. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 12. So we're going to read 12 and 13. We're going to talk about this guy, Epaphras. These names that did not make the ages. You just like call them Ep for short, maybe? Epaphras. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea, and those in Heropolis. To, to be mentioned in scripture like this is an honor, but it's also a story that CF's going to share with us this morning. There's a reason for it. Even if you get to the end of the chapter and you just kind of skip over it, there's a reason for it. And it's truth that we need to know. Uh, let us pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for your truth. I pray for that truth to be spoken this morning. See if we'll have the words that come from you, and that we will hear them, listen, and respond. For you are God, and we worship you and you alone. We say this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to dismiss the kids, ages 3 through 4th grade. They're going to go out to the hallway over here. If you need to go with them to know where to pick them up, then you're welcome to do so. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, David, for reading for us. Welcome. I'd like to welcome everyone here this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are studying through the book of Colossians. And as we study through the book of Colossians, we have arrived at the fourth chapter. We're getting close to the end of the book. It's where Paul uh, puts out all the salutations, recognitions of all the people that assisted him. Uh, and the one he's going to focus on today is Epaphras. And Epaphras was a faithful servant with Paul, a very consistent servant. But what Paul recognizes him for is his prayer and how important it was for this man as he prays. And so we're going to take a look at Epaphras and see how he fits into 
the ministry with Paul and, and what can we get from that as far as our own personal ministry? What should we be doing in the Christian life? And so if you would join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask for your divine guidance and direction as we come to this portion of the worship. Just pray, Father, that you'd give us insight and understanding, that you would direct me as I teach and keep me from error. Help me to rightly divide your word of truth and explain it accurately, and your people would receive it, and we would apply it and live for you. We do pray. We thank you for men like Epaphras and the work that he did. Even though we don't know a whole lot about him, he was very important to Paul, and therefore he is very important to the kingdom of God. We're grateful for his sacrifice and service on behalf of that. And so we pray we'd be able to understand it better today and, and live our life in a productive manner also. For it's in Christ's name we pray, Lord. Amen. We come here, he speaks of Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you? Now, he's addressing this letter to the church at Colossae, and so he identifies Epaphras as one of them, so he's a member from uh, Colossae. At the outset of his letter, he addressed, and he put uh, Epaphras in there. If you look at chapter 1, verse 7, he says, As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ, on your behalf. So Epaphras is serving Christ on behalf of the church at Colossae. When he says in the seventh verse that you learn from Epaphras, what most people think is that Epaphras helped found the church at Colossae. He was one of the early founders of the church uh, that was there. And uh, Onesimus is taking it over now. Uh, uh, I mean, Philemon is taking it over now and is actually conducting the services for him and stuff, but it began with Epaphras. Epaphras was the, the lead in that work. And in both passages, 1-7 and 4-12, he refers to him as a servant, is what he says he is. He says he is a servant. The word there is doulos. And the word means it's also translated slave in many places. And slaves in that culture were a very common uh, work arrangement that they had, uh, somewhat different from slavery that we had in America in the sense that slaves in that culture actually outnumbered the people, and, and the slaves were the workforce in that culture is what they were. But a lot of times a slave could get out of that relationship and come back, and they'd have to release the slaves, but they could come back, and they would come back quite often and, and go to the, their former master and say, I want to come back and work for you. I want to be permanent employee with you. And he would be his servant. He was his purchased property. It was the idea. But the idea of the servant was the servant didn't have his own rights. His only rights were what the master told him he had. And in the case of Epaphras, it says he's a faithful servant of Christ. So in the same way one would submit themselves to an earthly master, Epaphras has submitted himself to his earthly or to his heavenly Lord is what he's done. He's yielded himself completely. He says, Jesus Christ redeemed me from my sin. He delivered me from my sin. And so I'm going to voluntarily put myself in service to him to where I have no rights, no purpose, no direction other than 
what he purposes for me. That's what he's saying in that passage is Epaphras who is fully committed to Christ. That's what it means. Honestly, if you want to know how to give it a modern translation, Epaphras who has no self will, but whatever God wills for him. Epaphras who is fully surrendered, surrendered to his Lord. He says, he greets you. So Paul was probably, as he wrote this letter, you know, Epaphras is sitting there and he says, hey, I'm writing this letter to Ephesus. You got anything to say? He said, yeah, tell them hi, man. Tell them old uh, Epap says, hi, how they doing? You know, how's your game going? That kind of stuff. And so Paul says, Epaphras greets you. He gives you a hello is what he does. But this is what he's doing. He says, always laboring fervently for you in prayer. And that little, what we have two words, laboring fervently is a big compound word. Uh, intensity, uh, struggle, all those kind of words to contend, to fight, all those words parallel with it. There's the word on the screen. Agana, agani zoma is the word. The root of that word A-G-O-N, agon, is where we get our word agony from. And the word was utilized for gymnastic games in that country. And it meant to fight, to struggle, to contend, to be in an intense conflict. When I was in college, I wrestled. And uh, wrestling is one of those events that will wear you out. That's all there is to it, man. It uses every ounce of your energy. Uh, and you had to do it for nine minutes if you went the full bout. And by the time you got done, well, you couldn't get up off the mat. You honestly had to crawl out of there because it expends every ounce of energy that you have. That's what the word means. He's totally in the fight completely. He's in a battle for you. But this is not a physical battle that Epaphras is in. Epaphras is in a spiritual battle. He's in spiritual war against the forces of darkness and evil. And granted, those forces can come in a, in a spiritual sense, spiritual forces of evil. But folks, the biggest battle and the biggest fight we fight is against ourself. Amen. It's against our own fleshly sinful desires. And so Epaphras is doing what you call intercessory prayer. But he's laboring intensely. This, as it's used here, agonizomai as it's used here, it's the, the verb form. The noun form of the word is used also in Scripture. If you want to turn in your Bible to Luke 22, in Luke 22, the word is used in the noun form. And it says this, 22.44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. Now the agony that Christ experienced at this point was not from the scourge, that was going to come later. It was not from his beard being ripped out, that was going to come later. It was not from the nails on the cross, that was going to come later. It was not from the sin of the world, that's going to come later. The agony that he experienced at this time was the spiritual battle and the personal drama that he was faced with, that he was looking at, that he knew full well was about to be poured out upon him. 
And he's in a struggle. He's fighting in the midst of this. And so when you understand it in that sense, you get a better picture of what it means to be in the Christian battle or the Christian fight. It's a struggle. It is a struggle that we face on all fronts. The same word is used in, in other places in Scripture. For example, if, if you want to look over in, in the book of Hebrews, and in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, I'll show you a translation of the same word and how it's utilized. Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12.1 uses the same word, but it translates it different. He says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The word race. So he refers to it here as a race. Now this is an endurance race. This is a race that required full expenditure of energy. A battle, if you will. The word is also used over in 1 Timothy. If you want to go back to the left and look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That thing, fight the good fight. The good fight is the agony, the battle. Now when Paul writes that to Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life. What he is not saying in that passage is fight the good fight of faith so you can have eternal life. He's saying fight the good fight of faith so you can fully grasp what it means to live for God. You've got to fight the spiritual battle. You've got to overcome the obstacles to lay hold of or to experience all that eternal life means for your life here and now. He's not talking about eternal life up there. He's talking about living it out here. He's talking about living out the life that God has given you. Second Timothy, he uses it in the fourth chapter. And in this one, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've agonized through this thing. I've struggled through this. And what was Paul's struggle? Well, he faced a deep struggle personally. He even says in places that we were pushed down. We were trodden under. We faced conflict on all sides. That's the physical side. But he also faced that spiritually. See, the Christian fight and the Christian struggle is not just physical. It's also that deep spiritual burden that you carry and the deep spiritual desire to do the things of God and yet your own flesh rebels against you. So when he says in this passage, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, a man fully given to God, he says, hi. But he's always laboring fervently for you in prayer. He's praying on your behalf. Why is he having a labor like that? Why is he having a struggle like that in prayer? Because prayer is difficult. If you look in Scripture, Jesus said this in Luke 18. This is, this is before he was crucified. And he makes this comment in Luke 18, uh, verse 1. 
He says, he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That is, that is an introductory passage for a parable that he's going to give. But it has a profound truth in it. And that profound truth is this, that men ought to pray and not lose heart. So if you were to take that and to turn it around, you could put it like this. When we lose heart, many times it's because we aren't praying. When we lose hope, when we view the problems in the world as being bigger than what we can handle and the weight of that pressure comes down on us, the first question we need to ask, am I praying? Am I spending time in prayer to God? Because when we pray to God and we face stuff bigger than what we are, we'll have hope because we're praying to one that can solve any issue that we're faced with. What happened with the disciples? Well, folks, just go from there and go to chapter 22 of Luke. Go over in chapter 22 and uh, go to the same verse we looked at before. Go to Luke 22, 44. He's told the disciples to pray. He said, I'm fixing to go to the cross. I'm going to be crucified. Y'all need to pray. Verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling to the ground. And when he arose up from prayer and had come to the disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Now you think about that, folks. Why were they sleeping from sorrow? Because they've lost hope. Why have they lost hope? Because they quit praying. You see how the two are interconnected? They are overcome with sorrow to such an extent that right before Christ is going to be brought in for his trial, they're so down and depressed about what's taking place in their life that they all go to sleep. That's a common sign of a person that's depressed. They sleep a lot. Many times when people get depressed, they sleep. When the cares of this world become too heavy, we lose hope. We lose our, our zeal, our enthusiasm. That's what happened to the disciples. Why? It says they were sleeping from sorrow. They weren't sleeping because they were tired. They were sleeping because they were sorrowful. It was having an effect on their life. And Jesus, just four chapters before that, matter of fact, really the day before, told them, you ought to always pray so that you don't lose hope. And what do they do? They lose hope. And when he asks them to pray, they don't even pray because the sorrow is so overtaken their life. Prayer is very important in your life. It's critical in the Christian life. And you ought to be praying. And so what Epaphras does here, I'm back in chapter 4, Colossians. What Epaphras is doing, he's praying on behalf of the people in Colossae. He says he's praying fervently for you. And what is the word for prayer? Prosuke. Prosuke is another compound word. Pros meaning towards and ekamai meaning to make a vow. The word prosuke in the Bible translated prayer in our scripture means to make a vow or request to God. And the word prosuke is only used in scripture for prayer to God. Okay? And it's used numerous times. So Epaphras was making offerings 
for the people in Colossae to God. And when he was doing that, he had a purpose in doing it, too. And his purpose comes right after that. Look at it. That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. The word there for, for that is in the Greek text is the word henna. And henna is what is referred to as a purpose clause. Now, what does all that mean? What well, means this? You'd ask the question, what is Epaphras praying for? Why is Epaphras praying? What's going on here with Epaphras? Why is this happening, Paul? Let me tell you why. He's praying that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Epaphras was interceding that that would take place. The word perfect, contrary to what our English word means, we hear the word perfect and we think of perfection. But most of the time when the word is used in Scripture, the translation, especially when, it has, when it's this word in the Greek, telos, teleos, what the word means is an end or a purpose. To be complete, mature, fully sound. So you could translate it like this. He's always laboring fervently for you in prayers to God so that you may be mature. That's what he's saying there. He's wanting you to mature. What does the word maturity mean? Well, he's not talking about spiritual maturity. I mean, physical maturity. He's talking about spiritual maturity. When does a person become physically mature? Well, we say they become an adult when they turn 18. But for some people, it's 20. Some people, 40. <laughs> some people, they don't ever get there. That's just the reality of life. What is maturity? Maturity is where you make decisions that are bigger than desires. You do what's right. Why did you do that? I felt like it. Why did you say that? You hurt my feelings. That kind of stuff. When my children were dating, I'd tell them, before you date, you come talk to me. And they would come see me and say, hey, I'm going to date this person. What do you think about that? I said, I don't think a whole lot about it, really. If you don't know the truth, why you want to date them? Well, they're just nice and they're cute and uh, friendly. I'm like, okay, that is not a reason to date somebody. I said, you don't date them because they're cute. I said, case in point, look at me. I said, your mother, your mother dated me, and there was a day, there was a time when cute figured into the picture. But I said, cute don't figure in the picture no more. I said, things change. I said, that's like buying a house because you like the paint job. You're going to have to repaint it. You go for character is what you go for. You go for something bigger than looks because looks are going to change. Your body changes, folks. But character is who that person is. And see, maturity means you look beyond the surface. And in immaturity, reason I tell them is that you're too immature to date. And they say, well, how, how am I? I'm, I'm 16 now. 
And I said, yeah. I said, you can't manage your own life. Why do you want another life involved with these? You can't even manage your own. Explain that to me. Answer that one for me. Why would you drag another life into your life and you can't even manage your own life? See, a mature person can manage their life. Does that make sense? Follow that? That's what a mature person is. So a spiritually mature person would be a person that makes more spiritual decisions than they do fleshly decisions. A spiritually mature person looks at the world from divine viewpoint versus from a fleshly selfish viewpoint. A, a spiritually mature person sees themselves in the conflict and recognizes the conflict and goes past personalities. See, a mature person has a bigger view of life. And Epaphras is praying that they would be complete. Because we're never going to be perfect this side of, of full glorification. I hope you understand that. That's a misconception about the Christian life. A lot of times people tell me, yeah, I'd go to church there, but there are a lot of hypocrites and people like that and stuff. And I said, look, I'm a pastor. I said, I've been a pastor for 37 years. I could write a book on hypocrites. And it could be an autobiography. <laughs> Many times. That's just the reality of what we are, folks. That's what we are. We are failed, flawed people. We don't even measure up to our own standard. Take, take God's standard off the table. We don't even measure up to our own standard and our own expectations of other people. We don't. Look at Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. I want to show you something in there. Hebrews, the fifth chapter. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. says, For every high priest, taken from among men, is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God. That was the role of a priest. A priest ministered for the people unto God. A priest had his back to the people, okay, and he would minister on their behalf to God. He would intercede for them. He would do their sacrifices, do their offerings. He'd do all that stuff. And it says... He was appointed for men and things pertaining to God that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is beset by weaknesses. Well, hang on. You mean the high priest that went into the Holy of Holies and offered stuff to God? That, that guy had to take care of sin in his own life? He was the most spiritual person in that nation. And before he could minister on the people, he had to take care of his own garbage in his own life. If anyone was going to be perfect on earth, you would think that high priest would be. But he had to have sacrifice for his own sin. It says, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Then he uses the word complete in chapter 6, and look what he says. Therefore, leaving the discussions of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. He's not saying let us go on to having a perfect life. He's saying let us go on to maturity. And how do we do that? 
He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God, doctrines of baptism, laying on hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. In other words, move on in eternity and quit dealing with the elemental things in life. Go on to perfection. Go on to maturity. Become a mature person. Paul used the word in Colossians earlier in chapter 1 of Colossians. He uses the same exact word. Look at it. Colossians 1 and 28. He says this, speaking of Jesus, he said, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Mature. See, I'm perfect in Christ because I've got an eternal position with God and I have the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. So when I stand before God, I won't stand there because I did more good things than bad things. I will stand there because everything in my life is covered with the blood of Jesus Christ and I have his righteousness. That's what I stand with. And so when Paul's talking about presenting every man perfect, he's saying we want every man on this side of his position living in his condition to be mature. We want him to be mature. How's he going to be mature? By listening to what this word of God says. By applying this word of God to his life. He is going to become a mature person. Well, folks, if you look there in that fourth chapter, that's what Epaphras is praying for. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ, a man fully given to God, is always laboring fervently. He's in the battle and he's interceding for you that you may be mature. And the next word, complete. What does the word complete mean? It means to be fully assured, to have confidence. A lot of people lack confidence in their standing before God. You know what happens? Two problems. When we lack maturity and we lack confidence, our spiritual life is going to be like this, up and down, up and down. We're going to look like an echocardiogram. <laughs> it is. Boom. I'm good today. Boom. Not doing good today. I'm good to tomorrow. I'm bad. Boom, 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 boom. Up and down. What does God want? He wants us to get in there and just start riding and rising. Getting better and better. And in the process of doing that, the ups and downs become much smaller. We don't have these big swings in our life. You know, for this six months of my life, I'm walking with the Lord. I'm sitting in church. I'm praising God. And then for six months, you can't find me with a search warrant. Why? Because my life is up and down, all around. It's going all over the place. God wants us to be mature. He wants that life to be steady and moving towards Him. Even though we're having struggles along the way, we're in the agony of the battle, fighting our way, but we're not having these big swings. Why? Because we're maturing and we're becoming assured in our faith. See, we, be, we gain confidence. We gain confidence. Not in ourselves, but our confidence is in God's ability to carry us through no matter what we face in life. Amen. Oh, this has happened. Men should always pray and not lose hope. Amen. Always pray. Why? Because what you can't handle in life, God can. Amen. And he can give you the ability to get through it, even though he may not remove it. 
He will he will provide you the resources to face the struggles of life and to come out on the other side. Still walking with him. Because God never going to let you down. And the problem is we put expectations of what God is going to do. And that may or may not be what God's going to do. Don't put expectations on God. Put your confidence in God and your assurance in God that no matter what life brings, God's going to get me through it if I just stay with him. He's going to move mountains. And sometimes those mountains that he moves is our attitude. He changes us. He switches our desire. We always think of a mountain as something that's opposing us. Folks, sometimes the biggest mountains in life that we face is our own unrealistic expectations of the way things should be. And God can move that out of the way and our confidence and assurance in Him, we just stay steady on that pathway. So He says, Epaphras is fervently praying for you that you may stand as a mature and assured person in the will of God. Now note that little, that's a prepositional phrase. I know you hate that word because you had it in English in school and those were horrible things to have to deal with. But, uh, but that little prepositional phrase tells you where it's going to take place. It's going to take place in the will of God. I'm going to be mature and fully assured knowing that I'm walking in the will of God for my life. Everything that comes in my life by the hand of God, he's either allowing it or directly causing it. And there's a purpose for it. It may be that I need to trust him more. So he'll put a giant in my pathway. He'll put a mountain in my pathway. He'll put opposition in my pathway. And all opposition and all that stuff is, is opportunity to trust him. Don't view it as something that's going to cause you to fall. View it as something that's going to strengthen your face and cause you to focus more on God. And he said, I'm praying that y'all will be like that, that you'll stand and be assured and move the direction God has called you to move. For, verse 13, I bear him witness, Epaphras, I bear witness of Epaphras. He has a great zeal for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. And then he mentions Laodicea again. Verse 16. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. He's mentioned Laodicea twice in a matter of, what, four verses? Something like that. So he says, I'm going to send the same letter to them for them to read. And what's that letter going to be? About what you have in Christ. If then you were raised with Christ, 3.1, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things other. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. That's what he's been hammering through the whole text. And so he says, he's praying for Laodicea. He has a zeal for Laodicea. This message is going to Laodicea. Why? Well, go to Revelation 3. I'll show you why. 
Revelation 3, verse 14. And to the messenger, the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. What does that tell you? Some people succeed in the Christian life and some people fail. Instead of you being zealous for God, Laodicea, you're middle of the road. You're mediocre. I would prefer you be one extreme or the other, but you're right down the middle, and that's a disgusting place to be. I don't want you there. That's why Epaphras, you know why? Because that could happen to those people in Colossae. They could become lukewarm. And folks, it can happen to you and me. We can become lukewarm. We lose our zeal for God. What happens when we lose our zeal for God? We lose our desire to pray. What happens when we lose our desire to pray? We're going to lose heart and life. We're going to lose hope. And life is going to become dark and depressing and overbearing and consume us. You've got to stay faithful in prayer. You've got to stay in tune with God because that is going to lead you to maturity and assurance of your walk, and it's going to provide hope for your life. When you lose hope, stop and think about this. How much have I been praying? I can answer that. Not enough. Because Jesus said men ought to always pray and not lose heart. Epaphras was what we call a prayer warrior. That means he entered the arena and he agonized in prayer for those other people. He interceded on their behalf because he knew the dangers that they were faced with. Paul knew that too. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've grown to maturity and self-assurance in Christ. And my time on here on earth is over with. And I'm ready to go. I'm done. I've done all I need to do. It's done. It's over with. And I'm going to see the Lord. Folks, that's how you want to finish. You want to finish mature and fully assured in your relationship with Christ. And the way you do that is stay in the battle, stay in prayer, stay consistent in your relationship with God because you don't want to be having these wild swings. You want to get on that plane and it's, and it's paying attention to the little things. Reading the Word of God, worshiping God, praying to God, giving to God all the little fundamental basics of the Christian life. Keep doing the little things. He who is faithful in little will be made master over much. The little things matter. The small things matter. Because when we do the little things and the small things, then we can handle the big things. But if we can't handle the little things, we can't handle the big things. But Epaphras was there to pray and intercede for those people. Why? So they'd be mature and fully assured of their faith. That's where God wants each one of us to be mature and fully assured of our faith. And so we need to be praying. Let's pray. Father, our prayer and heart's desire is that we 
would be mature. But yet, Father, many times we look at our life, we realize we are making a lot of immature decisions. We are making a lot of self-centered decisions. We are allowing the culture and the world around us many times to dictate whether we have happiness or whether we have hope or not. And you yourself told us, Lord, that in this world we will have tribulation. But be of good cheer because you've overcome the world. Might we take those things we can't handle and place them in your hands? And might we go on to maturity and full assurance by living by faith and walking by faith day by day? That's my prayer, Lord, that each of us would do that. And I pray this in Christ's name, Lord. Amen.